I am so glad you're joining us today on this first Sunday after Thanksgiving, and we're about ready to ramp up the holidays. That's coming up real soon. In fact, this next week, we're going to begin a brand new series around Christmas called Christmas in a Minor Key. I know you don't want to miss that. Well, today we're wrapping up this short series, a two-part series about the will of God, God's will, and what that means to us, how we discern it. Last week, if you weren't here, check out the message online. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Facebook. You can find the podcast in many places all over the internet. We'd really love if you could just join us and listen to those messages, make the investments. It's totally worth your time. Today, as we get started, would you just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have this time together now to look at your word, to see what it has to say to us about how to walk in your will. I pray, Father, that you'll use my experience. I pray, pray that you'd use my study. I pray, God, that you would just be visiting in every heart and life as they're listening to the message today, that, God, you would show us exactly it is what we're needing. In Christ's name, amen. So tomorrow, on Monday, November the 28th, it will mark the 46th anniversary of my calling into the ministry. You see, it was on that day in 1976, I stood up on a Sunday night at Mansfield Free Will Baptist Church in Mansfield, Ohio, and I quoted this verse from 1 Timothy 1.12. It says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. I told the church that I had been unable to escape that verse from the first time I read it. God just kept bringing it back to me over and over again in my mind. I told, I told them, I told the church that I felt God was calling me into the ministry and I wanted to give my life to that cause. I was 14 years old. My pastor said, that's great. Next Sunday night, you're going to preach your first sermon. So on December 5th, 1976, just five days before I turned 15 years old, I preached my very first sermon ever. You know, I did this message about Peter when he stepped out of the boat to walk on the water to go to Jesus. And when he sank, he cried out the words, Lord, save me. And that was the title of my message that night, Lord, save me. I really can't remember much about that message other than the title and the topic, and I cried a lot in the message. But that night, six people trusted Christ as their Savior, and seven people renewed their commitment to Christ. So to me, that was God's confirmation that I had heard Him correctly. And since that day, 46 years ago, I haven't stopped. I, I've never taken a year off from preaching, even while I was studying in Bible college. And since that time, I've had the privilege of leading literally hundreds more people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In addition, because of my background in religious fundamentalism and the healing God's done in my life, I've helped countless others heal from toxic church backgrounds. People whose marriages are falling apart have found identity and help through the story of what God did in my marriage. I've helped addicts understand that even preachers don't have it all together and have benefited tremendously from the healing path that's in the 12th step. Through this church that God led me to start, we have given millions of dollars to help the poor with clean water, education, health, sustainable solutions that have helped to lift entire cities and regions out of poverty, showing the love of Christ in a practical way. Through the book God led me to write, hundreds of pastors from all over the world, across the U.S., Canada, Honduras, Ecuador, Brazil, and even as far away as New Zealand, have changed the way they do missions, and it's helped to raise even more millions for global and local missions. 
And what's most amazing to me about all those things I just mentioned is almost all of those things that God has accomplished in my life has been the result of my own personal failures. It's no fun being raised in religious fundamentalism. But healing from that toxic environment prepared me to lead other people out of it. Watching my life fall apart due to codependency and anger drove me to the point of seeking help in a 12-step program, which helped me to connect with addicts of all kinds. Nearly destroying my own marriage and what God accomplished through years of therapy have helped me to know how to guide others through those same dark times. Even all the stuff that's happened around our church and its commitment to help end global poverty, all of that flows out of a book appropriately entitled, We Were Wrong. That book is my confession of how I lost the narrative of just how important the poor are to the story that God's been telling for all time. So practically everything God has done in and through my life has made as much use of the bad as he has the good. God has used my talents for sure and my failures to accomplish his purposes. So what God put in the heart of a boy 46 years ago is something that he's affirmed over and over again in these many years. But because of this journey I've been on, I've learned a lot about how to listen to God, how to discern his will. Now, last week, I told you how important it is for us to begin with what we know, what God has already clearly revealed in his, uh, his will, which is in his word, the Bible. So the first and most necessary requirement in discerning God's will is to make it a habit to live the stuff he's already shown us. Because if we won't be faithful with the stuff he's already made clear, why would give us God give us more stuff that we won't do? So where I'd like to begin today is with misconceptions about the will of God. And the first misconception is this, that the will of God always equals smooth sailing. Friends, no one is exempt from problems. No, no one gets a free pass when it comes to difficulties. All of us are going to face troubles in life. Even the Bible reminds us of the same. The Bible says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is what Peter tells us. Jesus himself said, in the world, you will have trouble. So trouble and difficulty, they're just a part of being human. When people ask the question, why me? I just want to say, well, why not you? Why should you be the exception? It's a package deal. To live in a broken world means we face problems. We face difficulties. Honestly, it's just crazy that any of us think that we would have a problem-free life just because we're Christians or good people or because we're doing the will of God. You see, this is where a lot of our real problems start because some people get to thinking that when the going gets rough, when it gets tough, when it's difficult, then we must be out of the will of God. In other words, if I were in the perfect will of God, then I wouldn't be facing all these problems. Can you see how silly that line of thinking is? There's this really old movie starring Goldie Hawn called Private Benjamin. It's a comedy, but it's about this woman who, in order to escape the pain of her life, she joins the army. But the reason she did it is because she met this unscrupulous army recruiter who showed her these pictures of exotic places and condos and yachts and told her, this is the new army. And then the scene switches to Goldie Hawn at boot camp in complete and abject misery, and it's dawning on her that what she's experiencing is not what she promised. So she says to her drill instructor, I did join the army, but I joined a different army. You know, sometimes that's the way we feel. I, I want the other army. I want the other will of God. You know, the, the manna and the miracles, not the one with all the problems. 
But you just need to know, the will of God is not a get-out-of-pain-free card. Remember this, Joseph, he was in the perfect will of God when he was thrown into the pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, and even imprisoned for the same crime. Daniel was in the perfect will of God in the lion's den. Paul was in the perfect will of God when he was beaten and thrown into prison. Peter, James, and John were in the perfect will of God when they were being beaten and arrested for sharing Christ. And ultimately, Jesus hanging on the cross is the example of the perfect will of God. It reminds me of the story by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He writes about a man who was in a Soviet prison camp and experiencing just all the horrors of that place. And then there's this one scene in the book where Ivan, that's this character's name, Ivan is on his knees and he's praying and another prisoner sees him praying and begins to mock him, begins to ridicule him. And he says, your prayers are not going to get you out of here any faster. To which Ivan replied, I'm not praying to get out of prison. I'm praying that I might do the will of God. Solzhenitsyn nails it in this story. Wherever you happen to be, however you happen to get there, can you see that place as an opportunity to do the will of God instead of evidence that you're out of the will of God? Another very real myth that confuses people about the will of God is believing that the will of God will always leave me with a peaceful feeling. You know, a lot of Christians, they look for a feeling of peace before they make their decision. But in a prior series, I told you, the problem with that is peace can come in one of two ways. It can come by compromising our beliefs to fit with our messed up behavior, or by repenting and allowing our behavior to come into conformity with the Word of God. So let me ask you something. Where in the Bible does it teach that you'll know for sure that you got the right answer because you feel peace about it? The answer is nowhere. You see, this principle doesn't even come from the Bible. It's something that's picked up from a pagan philosophy called existentialism, which basically says, do what makes you feel good, or if it feels good, do it. I mean, they put feelings at the center of all things. Christians have taken this pagan philosophy and we've wrapped it in spiritual language, but it still comes out the same. In essence, a person who looks for peace at the center of every decision is saying, if it feels good, I'll do it. The verse that's most often quoted in support of this is first, or I'm sorry, it's Colossians 3.15. But I want you to see what this verse actually says. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. This verse is not talking about personal feelings of peace, but the corporate reality of peace that should exist among believers. In other words, Christians should get along so that they have peaceful relationships with one another. Besides, this idea that we'll always feel peace when we're in the will of God doesn't even fit with the Bible. I mean, think about it. In Jesus' deepest moment of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and his sweat becomes his great drops of blood. He's agonizing over what lies ahead for him. Is there any sane person who would describe that scene as peaceful? Yet there was never a person who was more submitted to doing the will of God than Jesus was in that moment. I mean, there are many difficult situations that I've had to face where I knew I was doing the right thing. I knew I was doing exactly what God wanted done, but I was miserable for having to do it. If I made peace the barometer of the will of God, I'd probably never confront anyone about a problem. I hate doing that, but sometimes it's necessary. So even though I may agonize over having to do it, I know it's the right thing to do regardless of how I feel. The problem in using feelings as a deciding factor is this. 
Peaceful feelings may follow decisions, but they seldom precede those decisions. It's like Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, once said, God often confirms his will after we obey, not before. So here's a third myth, a third myth about the will of God that some people erroneously believe, and that is that the will of God is to make me successful. Well, what is success? Well, according to the dictionary, it's obtaining a desired object or end. But human success will not always be the will of God for your life. Did you know that? When I started Spring Creek 32 years ago, I wanted to be a success. And for me, being a success meant having the fastest growing, biggest, and best church in the community. And I just want you to know, that was not a God-honoring goal. That was a Keith-honoring goal. Because back then, I didn't feel like I was enough. I needed, in a very unhealthy way, to have all the trappings of success to make me feel like I was somebody. But I clue you in on something. If you're not enough pastoring a church of 50 people, you won't be enough when you're pastoring a church of 500 or 5,000. As God began liberating me from the success syndrome, I found what I believed to be a far more uh, honoring goal to God than that, and that is to have a healthy church. God's goal for your life and mine is not making you a success as much as it is making you like his son. And he's going to do whatever it takes to make that transformation happen. Listen to this. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. What a beautiful verse. When we look more like Jesus after an experience than we did before it happened, that's success in God's book. But have you ever noticed we often look and act less like Jesus after a human success? When our ego and our pride gets in the way, we don't look much like Christ. It's times like that I realize why God's definition of success is so vastly different from our own. In fact, let me share with you a story. I've shared this with you before, but it perfectly illustrates what I'm talking about. Tracy Kidder, he's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, wrote a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's a biography of a guy named Paul Farmer. Farmer grew up in the rural poverty of the Deep South, but he attended Duke as, his, as an undergraduate student, and then he went to Harvard Medical School. Farmer now divides his time between Harvard, where he teaches, and central Haiti, where he operates a medical hospital. In the book, Farmer reflects on the life that he lives. It's divided between Harvard, where practically everyone you meet is successful, and Haiti, where almost everyone you meet is desperate. Toward the end of the book, a young Haitian man is flown to Boston for an emergency surgery with funds that were raised by Farmer's nonprofit organization. Later, the young man died. So one of the staff members began to question whether this was an appropriate use of the $20,000 it took to get this young Haitian to Boston and be treated. The staffer asked Farmer the question, could the money have been spent in a better way? Here's what Farmer said. Yes, but there's so many ways of saying that. For example, why didn't the airline company that makes money, why didn't they pay for the flight? That's a way of saying it. Or how about this way? How about if I say, I fought my whole life a long defeat? How about that? How about if I said that it all adds up to, that all it adds up to is defeat? Now listen to what Farmer 
elaborates on here. This is where he explains it, because I think there's something truly holy about what he's about to say. He said, a long defeat. I have fought the long defeat, and I've brought other people on to fight the long defeat. And I'm not going to stop because we keep losing. No, I actually think that sometimes we may win. I I don't dislike victory. No, I'm not complaining. You know, people from our background, we're used to being on the victory team. And actually, what we're really trying to do is to make a common cause with the losers. Those are two very different things. We want to be on the winning team, but at the risk of turning our backs on the losers, no, it's not worth it. So you fight the long defeat. Now, where did Farmer get that phrase, the long defeat? Well, it's actually a quotation from his favorite book, The Lord of the Rings. And in that book, Galadriel says this, Through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. Galadriel, of course, sprung from the imagination of J.R.R. Tolkien, who was the author of Lord of the Rings, who once wrote this in a letter to a friend. I'm a Christian, so I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some glimpses of final victory. Now, most of us have probably never thought of the Christian life in this way, but I think it's high time we did. A part of our calling as the people of God is to live in solidarity with the world's poor. The poor of this world are often blamed for their own condition. The ones who flee violence and war and oppressions are the ones that society most demonizes. To align our lives with theirs, we should expect what Jesus received for his alignment with the poor, name-calling, hatred, crucifixion. Jesus completely aligned himself with those that the world calls losers and lepers, the poor and the outcast, the neglected and the marginalized, the sick and the broken, the hungry and the thirsty. Jesus still fights the long defeat. Jesus throws in his cause with us. He doesn't turn his back because there's setbacks and adversity or little evidence of progress in our lives. If you and I are to follow in the footsteps of Christ, then we too must learn to fight the long defeat. Here's what I know. I would rather lose in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to win in a cause that will ultimately lose. Justice will win one day. I hope to see it happen in my day. But I know until Jesus returns, evil will often gain the upper hand. So I choose to fight the long defeat, which means maybe God's purpose for my life is not to be the pastor of a highly successful church. Maybe his purpose is for me to lose everything I care about for the sake of the poor and the marginalized. Maybe like Jesus, I'll be hated and subjected to verbal abuse because of the people I associate with. But even if the world brands me a loser, even if people question, why would you even care about those people? If it makes me more like Jesus, then in God's book, that's success and that's his purpose. What I'm saying is, is don't let the world's definition of success blind you to the will of God. If losing makes you more like Jesus, God would rather you lose. So in our time remaining, let me talk to you about what I think are some of the most important discernment principles that God has given us. I call them leading lights that help me navigate uncertain waters. I don't know if you've ever heard the term leading lights or range lights. They're actually nautical terms. You see, there are certain harbors around the world where there's really only one channel that's deep enough for ships to enter that harbor, and oftentimes that channel is quite narrow. 
So before the days of GPS navigation, on the shore there would be two, sometimes even three lights in towers or beacons. And the, the slides on the screen right now are going to give you examples of leading lights. So in these particular harbors, when you enter that harbor, whether by day or by night, the only way you knew for certain that you were in the ship channel was when those two lights on the shore or those beacons on the hillside ahead would perfectly align so that both lights appeared as one. If they still appeared to be two separate lights or two separate columns, you knew you were not in the channel and you risked running your ship aground. So let's talk about God's leading lights, and there are three of them. When they align, when God is sending the same message through all three of these channels, then we can be fairly confident that we're headed in the right direction. So the first leading light is God's inner promptings. Now, we just completed an entire series on prayer, and the last message in that series I called, Are We Just Talking to Ourself? It was all about how to hear and discern the voice of God in your spirit. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this particular point because we just covered it two weeks ago. But I will encourage you, if you weren't here, you can go to the Spring Creek Church YouTube channel. You can watch the message there. You can still find it in our podcast. You can find it on the church's Facebook page. But I will add this. If you think that God may be leading you in a new direction, the first thing you should do is ask yourself, what does God have to say about it? Of course, there are two main sources of God's communication to us, the Bible and these inner promptings. But there's also this other question. How will my spiritual life be enriched? You see, the Bible says, be concerned above everything else with the kingdom of God and with what he requires of you, and he will provide with all the other things. Ignatius of Loyola once said this, which choice helps me to love God better? Excellent question. How would I advise another person I have never known? Or if I were at the point of death, what would I wish I had done? So let's say you're offered a new job. It involves a move. On the surface, there's more money, there's more responsibility, greater opportunity for advancement. It's a nicer climate on top of that. You look over the offer, you, everything checks out just the way it was promised. The only questions now are, what house will I buy? What schools are in the area? So you get ready to make your move. Then after you get moved in, the dust is settled, the kids are in school. Then you say, okay, it's time to go find a church, as if there were great churches everywhere. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great churches all over this country, but they are not everywhere. What I'm saying is, is your spiritual life is far more important than that kind of decision-making reflects. Before you check out that new corner office or the type of schools or the kind of transportation, find out where your spiritual life and the spiritual life of your family is going to be enriched. Because when it's all said and done, schools and bank accounts and houses will come and go, but your spiritual life matters forever. Remember this, decisions are more than data. Not all the answers you need can be seen on a calculator or a spreadsheet. In fact, some of the deepest issues in decision-making are non-quantifiable. Take, for example, this is a decision that was made by Lot. This is the brother of Abraham. When he was choosing where he and his family would settle down, he let the facts and the facts alone decide for him. Here's how the Bible describes it. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan River, well-watered everywhere, the whole section was like the Garden of Eden, so that is what Lot chose. 
So get this, I mean, Lot was a herdsman, he has sheep, he has cattle to support, so he chose the well-watered plains of the Jordan River. But what Lot didn't account for was his own spiritual condition and the influence of the culture of the city of God, uh, Sodom on his family. And because he didn't factor that into this uh, decision-making, he lost his family and he lost his influence. It's always tempting to think that an offer of more money and advancement or transfer to a better position in a new community is always better, but it's not better if it doesn't enhance your spiritual life. Another one of the leading lights that helps us to discern the will of God is this, it's circumstances. Now, there's no question, circumstances alone are not reliable. It's just one of the leading lights, but by itself, it's not enough. I mean, think about it. Circumstances that seem negative don't always mean stop. How many of you faced adversity or difficulty when you started your new business or when you went to get your degree that you need to do the job you do now or anytime you started something brand new? All of us did. Now, did that difficulty mean you weren't supposed to do it? No. And sometimes favorable circumstances don't always mean go. Like they say, sometimes open doors lead to elevator shafts. What I'm trying to say is when all the other indicators line up in a decision, the right circumstance might prove to be the icing on the cake. The final thing that serves as a confirmation of the will of God could be this circumstance, that it's an open opportunity for you. But we never want to discount it. We don't want to discount circumstantial leading. Even Jesus himself talks about circumstantial leading in the book of Revelation. He said this, he, that's Jesus, has the key. And when he opens a door, no one can close it. And when he closes it, no one can open it. So Jesus can open doors of opportunity and he can close them too. So what role should circumstances play in decision-making? Well, look at this. The, the role of circumstances in decision-making is number one, suggestive. And what I mean by that, it suggests that this is something I should give careful consideration to. But the second role they play is confirming. And by confirming, I mean, when everything else lines up in a decision, circumstances are, are maybe the, the final uh, denominator. Uh, let's say you're single. You're head over heels about a girl. You have a great time together. You're thinking about getting married. You believe she's a great match. You think this is God's will, that you're going to get married. A confirming circumstance might be she says yes when you ask her. So circumstances have to be considered along with all the other facts. In fact, look at this. It's part of the definition of circumstance in the dictionary. A circumstance is a fact or event that must be considered along with another fact or event. So even the very definition of the word makes clear that more information is needed. God can and will use circumstances to lead us. Parker Palmer, he was a young man. He was trying to figure out God's calling on his life. He was trying to find a career that seemed to be a good fit. At the time, he was living in a Quaker community outside of Philadelphia. It seemed that whenever he tried to talk to one of his Quaker friends, they told him the same thing. Have faith and the way will be made known to you. But Palmer was getting discouraged because he'd been praying, he'd been listening to God, and nothing seemed clear to him at all. One day, he went to visit an older member of the community, a woman named Ruth, and he told her, I've tried many different kinds of work, but nothing seemed right for me. My friends kept telling me that the way will open if I have faith, yet I've been praying and the way is not being made clear to me. The way may open for other people, but it sure isn't opening for me. After a moment of reflecting on that, Ruth spoke. She said, I've been a birthright Quaker for 60 plus years, and the way has never opened for me. 
She paused, and of course, Palmer's heart sank at that. Then Ruth said this, but a lot of the way has closed behind me, and that has had the same guiding effect. So together they laugh out loud, and in that moment, Palmer realized a simple truth that kind of reframed his quest. He wrote, there is as much guidance from God in what does not happen and cannot happen in my life as there is in what can and does happen, maybe more. So one way we can determine this this call, this direction of God, is if we're sensing an opening before us or if we're sensing a way being cut off behind us. In fact, this is often a great way to pray. Lord, if this is not an opportunity you're making, I ask you to close the door, slam it shut, lock it, make so it's inaccessible to me. Make it your utmost desire that no matter how great the opportunity offered to you, you'd rather see it close off permanently than to accept something that doesn't align with God's will for your life. The final light that God brings into our life to help us discern his will are godly friends. The Bible says, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Or how about this in Proverbs eleven nine: 9, the wisdom of the righteous can save you. And even this verse, without counsel, plans go wrong, but they, with many advisors, they succeed. I honestly don't know how people make it in life without close friends. No one's smart enough, no one's spiritual enough to make good decisions all on their own. We need friends who know us well, who love us well, to keep help us see what we're not seeing, to affirm what they know to be true of us, and help us see our blind spots. And here's the kicker. For some reason, God has designed life so that you have to make some of your biggest decision, career, marriage partner, where to live, when you lack the maturity that you'll gain later in life. As I mentioned last week, in Bible days, these decisions were pretty much made for you. If your father was a farmer, you became a farmer. You didn't choose your career. It was chosen for you. Your parents also played a major role in choosing your marriage partner. Even where you live depended largely on where your family owned land. So today, to make great decisions, we need friends. Older, wiser friends who've walked with God for some time, know Him well, know us well, who can speak into these major life decisions. The wisdom of friends is one leading light. It's not the only light, but when combined with the others, it can be a powerful indicator of the will of God. But let me add this. Some of you, you go to your friends for advice, and each of them has a different opinion. So you end up even more confused after you've talked to them than before you talk to them. Part of the reason we get so confused is because we're letting others decide for us. Your friends are telling you what to do, which is something they should never do, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But because they're telling us what to do, you end up polling your friends, acting as if each one of them is casting a vote. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. You need better friends who aren't trying to control you or direct your life. The value of good friends is not that they tell you what to do, but that they help us think more clearly, understand the real issues at stake, and see things we've never seen before. The other value of friends is especially when they know you well, they also know your blind spots and weaknesses and can offer you caution to make sure you're not falling into old behavior patterns that don't serve you well. Someone once said, there's two kinds of counselors. There's counselors with spiritual sense. These are the folks who walk with God, understand scripture, can guide you on how to better connect with God. And then there's counselors with common sense. 
These are the people with practical wisdom. They've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. If you're buying a car, who would you be better to seek out? Someone with spiritual sense or common sense? Well, I'd stay away from the guy with spiritual sense because he might just tell you to buy a Honda since that's the only biblical car there is because the Bible says the early church was all in one accord. Okay, I had to go for it. I'm sorry. When it comes to car buying, you also wouldn't want to come talk to me about a car. When my girls were little, Haley asked Brenda, what happens to cars when they get old and used up? And Brenda said, someone sells it to your father. So the Quakers, who also go by the name the Society of Friends, have a really wonderful and intentional way of helping those in community make good decisions. They call it a Quaker clearness meeting. So what is clearness? Well, clearness is all about clarity. It's Christian friends coming together to help individuals discern God's leading and direction. Now, the purpose of the meeting is first and foremost to listen to the individual. And by listening, enable the person to discern the way forward. But there's some hard and fast rules too, like no one is to give advice, no one's to try to solve the problem, no one is there to do therapy on the individual or try to figure out what's motivating them. The purpose of the meeting is to help the individual express and understand their own feelings and encourage and empower that person to make their own decisions. Like Jan Hoffman said, the answers sought are within the person seeking clearness, though they may not be revealed until sometime after the meeting. So usually it's a group of about five to six individuals who are involved in the consultation. The meeting takes place in a quiet place. It's, it's private. It's comfortable seating. What's said is completely confidential. Throughout the meeting, the main responsibility is to look after the individual who's seeking clarity by ensuring that they're in an atmosphere of caring and trust. The group is allowed to ask questions but not make statements. So they're to avoid using phrases like, you know, from my experience, or why don't you do this, or have you ever tried this? The group's main responsibility is to ask questions. Now, questions can be probing and challenging, but they must always be gentle and caring and open and not loaded questions or not questions intended to lead someone to a foregone conclusion. So you might ask questions like, can you tell us more about this or that? Or how do you feel about this offer or that offer? By the way, this is exactly the way my community group functions, and I've been a part of it for 29 years. My friends, they hear me out. They're not there to tell me what to do. They help me think through my issues. They support me in the process. When they ask me questions, I never feel like they're trying to lead me to some conclusion that they've already come to in their own head. Instead, I feel validated. I feel heard. I feel empowered to make a better choice on my own. I think this is why the Bible says God's intent is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. If you want to get God's wisdom on something, go to church. The Christian life is a family life. We need each other. We need those who know and love us well because Lone Ranger Christians are easy prey for wolves, easy prey for deception, easy prey for discouragement. So how might God be leading you today? Maybe you've had an opportunity present itself and you're wondering, is this God's will? Is this an open door? Great. But remember, circumstance alone is not enough. What are you hearing from God? What are you hearing in that inner voice? What are you seeing in God's word to guide you in this? And what do the most mature Christian friends that you have have to say about it? Or maybe as of late, life has just been hard. I mean, really difficult. And because you believe the lie, because you think that maybe because life is hard, you've missed out on the will of God? That's not true. It's not true at all. 
Difficulty is part of life, even in the center of the will of God. More importantly, how are you letting this difficulty shape you and mold you into someone who looks more like Jesus? Because that's God's will always and all the time. He wants to make you more like his son. Maybe you're going through a season of loss right now, and you can really identify with this idea of fighting the long defeat. If that's what my life is, I'm going to continue to hazard it for the kingdom of Christ, for his purposes, for his will, even if it never gets traction, even if I never win in the eyes of the world, I'm going to align my life with God and his purposes. And it doesn't matter if it's popular. It doesn't matter whether other Christians understand it. Maybe even they judge me for it. What matters is being on the same side as Jesus. But I will remind you of this powerful verse in 1 John. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Only those who do the will of God will abide forever. Everyone else in this broken, shallow world will pass away. There is no eternity associated with injustice or wrongdoing, but God's will and God's way last, as do those who do his will. So I started on this journey at the age of 14, and I don't plan on ever quitting on God. Not now, not ever. I want to be among those who lasts for all eternity because I chose to do his will. Let's pray. Father, I think about Dr. King and in his famous speech on the Washington Mall, as the crowds are gathered, he says truly one of the most spiritual things that any national leader could say. He said, I just want to do God's will. I just want to do God's will. And I pray, God, that that would be our heart, that that would be our sentiment as well, that we want to do God's will, that we want to do the things that he wants done in this world. And God, that is not always easy to understand like we discovered last week. There's some things that are plain. There's some things that are clear. They're all spelled out in your word. That's the clear revealed word of God. That's your clear revealed will. We want to do those things. And God, the other things, they take a process of discernment of first jettisoning those ideas that are not consistent with the will of God. Things like thinking the will of God is, a, is an easy path or thinking the will of God will always be something that, that, that I feel peace about before I do it. That thinking the will of God is always about me being successful and never suffering loss. That those things are absolutely incongruent with the will of God as we see it in Scripture. But Lord, you have given us leading lights, You've given us clear indicators of your direction. It begins with you, with the Holy Spirit, your inner promptings in our life, what you're saying to us. That is often confirmed by circumstance, that you're creating opportunities and you're shutting doors to other opportunities. And then, God, we have this community around us called the church, the people of God, that we lean into and we trust their wisdom. And we know that we think better and we process better in the company of our friends who are on this same path with us. And God, when all three of those things align, then we can be confident and we can move forward doing your will your way. All I want to do is your will. For now, and for the rest of my life. I pray that's all of our desires. In Jesus' name, amen. I am grateful that you chose to be with us today. I hope that as this holiday season 
continues and we move toward Christmas, that you'll make it a point to join us, whether online or in person, in the coming Sundays as we move deeper into the heart of God in this amazing story of God entering the world on Christmas morning to bring about the deliverance, the salvation of men and women. I thank God for that. I know it's going to be a very special time. We've got Advent season coming up with a time of devotion each and every day leading up to Christmas. Join us for those things as well. If you like today's message, please make a point, go online, like it there, share it on your timeline, whether on Facebook or other forms of social media. It's the greatest compliment you can pay us. God bless you. I hope you have a great week.